The scripture reading this morning is from Acts 2, verses 1 through 47. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, 
He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of, all, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the, from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked, gener crooked de generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. So we've been in our series, we're about halfway through now, the series of the triumph of Jesus' ministry. You'll see, if you've grown up around the church or you have friends that have grown up around the church, the, some of the big things that stand out are uh, Good Friday and the crucifixion and what happened there with atonement for sin. And then there's, the, there's Easter Sunday with the resurrection. Christmas gets a lot of play too with the birth of Jesus and the incarnation. But what happens after the resurrection from the dead? What does it mean to us? And so we've been looking at once Jesus is risen again from the dead and he ascended, what's going on? How are, how are we relating to God as a result of that? And uh, we're in the middle of our series, and today we're looking at uh, the passage on Pentecost. Now, Jesus' promise for the Holy Spirit, you know, his disciples, his apostles were waiting there for the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit. And Jesus' promise for the Holy Spirit happened this day, Pentecost. What is Pentecost? It was something before this day as well. Did you know that? One of the things that it was is uh, there was a Jewish feast of first fruits of the harvest. 
right? Jewish feasts were first fruits. So as the harvest was coming in, um, you know, my grandfather had a tomato garden, for example, in his backyard. And I remember summer times growing up with him as a boy, and the first ripe tomato off the vine, which was always so wonderful, would give an indication of what the rest of the harvest was going to taste like. It was a first fruit. It was a first taste of what it was like. But... Pentecost also happened around 50 days after Passover. So it was recognized by the Jews of the time uh, when God came down to Mount Sinai to meet with Moses personally. And this was important, to meet with Moses personally. So why this day for Jesus to send his spirit upon his people and upon the church? Uh, We've already talked a little bit about first fruits, but God's personal presence was an important thing too. Just as God was present and spoke with Moses personally, he chose this day so that everyone would know that because of Jesus, that he can dwell with each one of us personally. You remember that we said the ascension of Jesus uh, changed it so that Jesus was uh, no longer limited from one place at a time, dealing with one person at a time, where he would be able to deal with anyone, anywhere, at all times. And so the ascension is a very important part of this. And God's personal presence is is a central part, a key part of what Pentecost means. Through the Holy Spirit, Jesus pours out God's love into their hearts and into our hearts. Jesus brings about communion or community with God with us, which will remain forever. It's an eternal covenant. It's a new covenant. It can't be taken away. The relationship that we have through God, with God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, because of Jesus' work, can never be taken away. My uh, wife and I watch some TV shows. We've been watching the new Sherlock Holmes from BBC, which has been fantastic. Uh, fantastic rendition of that. But we also had liked the series Chuck, which just ended this year. Chuck is a very non-pretentious show about uh, a nerd who becomes a spy and falls in love with a, a girl. And over the course of the series, one of the main things that is drawn out is Chuck's devoted friendship to Sarah. He's so devoted that the series ends with Chuck not asking anything from Sarah, but promising that he will always be there, always be a friend. I won't give away the plot line if you ever care to watch it. But uh, the idea is that just undying devotion, that no matter what you can bring to me, no matter what you can give to me, I will be there for you. I will promise to be there for you. It's the same thing that's going on here. So we're going to look at God pouring out his love into our hearts through his spirit and that it's extraordinary. And by extraordinary, we mean supernatural. But we'll get to that. It's also, it also provokes a reaction. God pouring out his love in us provokes a reaction. And then lastly, it brings about results. So God's pouring his love into our hearts through his spirit is extraordinary. There are ordinary means, of course, through which God works. We're about to come to the table, and we have ordinary means here, bread and wine. We just celebrated the sacrament of baptism. We had ordinary means, water. Much of biblical history is God using ordinary means. And God, in fact, using the small things to shame the wise. Uh, we see in the Bible that Jesus, the Lord delights uh, in you know, the still small voice right, with Elijah. Rather, not the whirlwind, not the big storm, but the still small voice. Or Paul talks about how the foolish things, the gospel, 
that one, the weakness of one man living and dying and rising again can be the thing that brings salvation to, to all people from every nation. Or working through the poor and the marginalized, the outcasts, as you read some of the lineage of how the Messiah came about in the world, how our representative came about. It's through meager people. Jesus himself was born into a meager family, poor. And he didn't have a place to be laid as he, was, as he was born. So there's a sense in which using ordinary means is one of the things that God delights in. And we see that. We see that in Scripture. But there are also extraordinary means. Now, a lot of people refer to this as miracles, but I'm going to call them extraordinary. Because God is free to do either. Free to do either. Extraordinary means God is free to work through these. It's not the way, main thing, the main way that God works in the Bible. If you look at redemptive history, as you read the Bible, one of the things you'll notice is that there are hundreds of years that sometimes pass without any kind of extraordinary event going on at all. It's actually just normal unfolding of daily life in the lives of a small group of people. But he does do it. It doesn't mean, just because it's not the ordinary way that God does things, doesn't mean that he's not free to do them as he wills. You know, one of the things... Um, one of the things we know through physics is the second law of thermal dynamics. you know this law? This law is something that we can demonstrate through science, which says because we see that the universe is sort of pushing outward from its point of origin, that everything is entropying, everything is decaying, everything falls apart. Some of you look really great right now. It's not going to last, Right? Uh, some of you have great families or loved ones, and that's not going to last. We're faced with death all the time. Everything decays. Everything falls apart. But what we're saying is that the Lord is free to work against that law at his will. You take uh, the resurrection, one of the cornerstones of what our faith is, and there the Lord undoes completely the second law of thermodynamics. He's not bound by it. It's part of the message of the resurrection. And so he's free to work uh, outside and against. In fact, he is outside of the laws, the laws of physics even, the laws of mechanics, the laws that we know to be true are things that he's created. They're external to him. There's a distinction between the creator and the creation, even the laws of time, the laws of physics, the laws of the second thermal, you know, second thermal dynamic principle. So... Extraordinary means here in our passage that God's Spirit is, number one, from heaven. And you remember that we've talked about the idea that heaven is different in the Bible than the heavens. The heavens means sky. Heaven is something distinct. It's the realm where God dwells. It's not the skies. It's not space. It's not the universe. It's something distinct. It's a distinct realm. But also we'll see that His Spirit makes a sound. It's audible. It sounds like what? A mighty rushing wind. And then much like Jesus' appearances after the resurrection, we see that the Spirit passes through even walls and doors and ceilings of the house. We see that it filled the whole house entirely, that it went through those things. And then last, we also see that it takes the shape of fire and rests on those gathered. It rests on them. Now, the Jews there at that time would have made the connection between wind and the Spirit of God. You remember before all of this happened, in John 3.8, Jesus was uh, saying to Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, 
but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So it's extraordinary in that way. But they would also have connected fire that they saw with the Holy Spirit. You remember John the Baptist talking about Jesus' ministry to come. John said this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, one of the things that the Spirit does is enable them to speak about the mighty work of God in their languages, in languages from every nation around the world. Now, one of the interesting things, it's important to note this, this was not needed. This was not needed. Why? Because the common language of the day to do trade in, to do basic set, go to the grocery store, to go to the market and exchange things to bring home food for your family, was a basic vernacular Greek. Everybody spoke it. So this wasn't necessary. These tongues weren't necessary What do they talk about? Why are they there? Why this? It's given to us so that the personal presence of God, personally, personal presence comes into the context of every nation, every tongue, every tribe, the way that you grow up, your heritage, your family customs, the way that you speak, your draw, your dialect. The presence of God is coming into that personally to demonstrate that he's now available personally to you. The covenant with Israel opened up to all nations so that Israel has become one of the many, no more, no less than any other nation. And although sin blocks everyone's way to God, both Jew and Gentile, in the gospel, the people of the Lord are being gathered out of all nations who now have a claim on the world again. You see, sin separates us from that that role that we're to play. Do you remember the Messiah's role? He's to rule and reign in God's favor, in God's behalf. Rule and reign. We see that back in Genesis. Humanity is to rule and reign. We're to be stewards of what we've been given on the earth. And yet sin blocks us from that. Now, God began meagerly with small people, and then he began with a small nation. And he's exploding that to every nation here. He's saying that no matter what nation, no matter what background, that your job to represent me on the earth is open to you now. It's no longer blocked from you. You can live life in a different way. The renewal brought by the Spirit touches the ordinary and richly varied life of this world because the the word of the Spirit is understood by the hearers in their native languages. The Lord cares about the way that you grew up. He cares about your family. He cares about your people. He cares about your country. He cares about you, where you are, and where you come from. And this was a radical change, a radical unexpected ending to the story, to the Messiah coming, to things being renewed, to God building his kingdom on the earth. And we see that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved brought out of darkness into the light of God's presence. So God's pouring out his love into our hearts through his spirit is extraordinary. Redemption, the gospel, usually works its way into our lives through the ordinary ways, the small ways. But there are extraordinary moments too. And don't discount them. We see them here. And we can see them in your life and my life as well. 
But God's pouring out in our love is, through his spirit is extraordinary. But it's also when he pours out his love into our hearts through his spirit, it provokes reaction. You can't be casual about it. Or you shouldn't be. It says in our passage, the devoted people were amazed and astonished and perplexed by the meaning of the event. But it also says, despite this, test, despite this actual event, can you imagine seeing this? Despite the actual event, it says others mocked. So there's a way in which we can hold on to what we believe, hold on to our worldview, hold on to our presuppositions in a way that we assume that they're right. And we don't let even God challenge them. And so you have to be careful there. We see this, many of you have studied philosophy and read the works of philosophy. And you'll know that there are different camps throughout the history of philosophy. One of the camps deals with what is normative. Immanuel Kant talked about categories, these categories, right? Noumenal, phenomenal, and so forth. And you appeal back to that for what every, what, how you knew everything else. And then there are existential philosophers that said what? No, it's not normative categories, it's internal categories. It's internal criteria by which we decide things are right or wrong. And you have empiricists who look at the situation around us, our context, and say, if you can't see it, or taste it, or touch it, or smell it, or hear it, or demonstrate it in a repeated way, then, then it's not worthy of being the things by which we order all other things. But what each of those things does is separate itself out and against the other perspectives. They all need to cohere. And in, the Christian, here, in Christian faith, Christianity, what we see here is all three of those things brought together and held together. So we see the mind... The Peter's concerned with the mind, the normative, right? What, uh, what is rational? What is reason? Peter reasoned with the Jews there, among whom were many standing who saw Jesus alive. If you've been following along in our, in our passages, one of the things that happened was that there were about 300 people who saw Jesus alive before his ascension over a period of many days. Paul testifies in front of governors, said, you know this is the case. This was not done in a corner. You can go talk to any one of them. And so some of those were here now. And with those there that anyone could appeal to about who Jesus was and what he had done, Peter reasons with them. He tells them the story of God's mighty work. He describes the effects of it. Peter later writes in one of his letters that we're to be prepared to do what? To give the reason for the hope that you have. Do this with gentleness and respect, right? To give the reason. So we're concerned with the mind. Christianity is not just an emotion. It's not just a feeling. It's not just the power of God in an extraordinary way. There's a body of truth that we have to assent to, that we have to believe, that we have to understand, that we have to tell others about. But also, Peter was concerned with the heart. Verse 37, they were cut to the heart with what Peter said to them. Cut to the heart. What does that mean? He's talking about repentance. Repentance is a biblical word, which means to turn from what you've been holding on to for your identity, for your security, for your significance. Turning from that and turning to the Lord, who's the only one who can give you an identity that can't be taken from you, that can't be shaken, that can't be undone, that can't be threatened. And the problem is, is that we can counterfeit repentance. 
We can counterfeit turning from those things and turning to God through what? Through being sorry for the circumstances of what our sin has caused. Have you ever seen somebody who's caught, who's caught in the middle of doing something wrong? And it's possible for them to be very sorry for being caught. The consequence is being caught. They're found out. They have to deal with people differently now in the relationships around them. But there's a difference between being sorry for being caught and being sorry for grieving the Lord who has come to dwell inside of you through His Spirit and testify that you are His child. There's an old uh, Charles Spurgeon illustration of the king and the carrot. Have I told you this one? No. The king and the Charles Spurgeon was an old Baptist preacher in England. And he, to- he told this, uh, this story of a king who had a kingdom, and there was land, and there were, there were people on the land, some farming it, some doing other tasks on it. And one day, the king was in his, his uh, throne, and in comes a farmer with this gigantic carrot. It's beautiful. And he's carrying it up, and he, he lays it before the king, and he says, Oh, my king, my sovereign, this is the best carrot I've ever grown. It is so wonderful. I know that I'm never going to grow another one like it. And because you're such a wonderful king and I love you so, I want you to have it out of a token of my esteem and love and appreciation for all that you do for me and for my family. Well, the king was struck by that. He was struck by that. And he said, as the farmer was going out, just rejoicing that he was able to give the carrot, the king said, wait a minute, come back. I have some land that's right next to yours. Would you please take it and farm on it also? And be fruitful and multiply your efforts. Thank you for your love to me. I love you too. And so the farmer went out, rejoicing doubly so. Well, in the background of the court, there's a nobleman watching all this happen. And he thought, hmm, if if the farmer got all of that land for a carrot, what will I get for my best horse? And so he went out and he got the best horse in the kingdom. He brought it to his king and he made a show of it. And he said, oh, king, out of my love for you and appreciation, I bring you the best steed in the kingdom. It is the best horse I've ever had. It's the best horse that will ever be in the kingdom. And I want you to have it out of token of my esteem and appreciation and love for you. And the king discerned his heart. And he said, thanks. And he took it and he started to walk out. And he, he stopped and he turned around because he saw the nobleman's face fall. And he said, let me explain. You're upset because you saw that the farmer gave me the carrot and I gave him the land in return. And you were hoping when you gave me the horse that I would give you something in return. But the difference is, is the farmer gave me the carrot and you gave yourself the horse. So there's a sense in which we can counterfeit repentance by giving, being sorry for the consequences, and by changing our actions temporarily, but we're actually giving ourselves our efforts. We're trying to get out from under the weight that we're under. We're not concerned with our relationship with God. We're not concerned with offending Him. And true repentance is. So you can either counterfeit, you can show the opposite. Others mocked, the passage said. You can, you can hold fast to your conviction, to your worldview, you're appealing back to it as its authority. Everything has a circularity to it. You know, even if you're using rationality as your worldview by which you judge all other things, you've got to appeal back to that rationality as the standard by which you judge all other things. There's always circularity. You can't avoid it. 
or there's real repentance. There's a sorriness for the fact that you don't, didn't know how personally it offends the God who loves you. You didn't realize or you ignored it altogether. You're sorry for in your relationship with him. You're sorry for not knowing what you have done to offend him. There is a, one of my favorite stories is of a Welsh town. And the Welsh town's name, ready? It's named after a dog. The Welsh town's name is Bed Gellert, which translated means the grave of Gellert. And the story goes like this. Llewellyn was the lord of this manor, and one night he came home. And he came home to, into his son's room, and his son wasn't in his bed, and there was Gellert, his great dog, lying beside the bed with blood all over his mouth and blood all over his, cur- his coat. And so the lord of the manor, Llewellyn, in an angry rage, drew his sword and stabbed the dog through the heart and killed it. And after he'd done that, he went in the next room, and there was his son, well, not a scratch on him. And besides his son was a giant wolf that had come in to kill him, and it lay dead. And the king, the lord of the manor, was overwhelmed. He didn't know what he had done to the savior of his home. And so they named the town after this dog. Now that can well up emotions in us, right? If the story of a dog can well up emotions about not knowing what we have done, true repentance of not knowing how our brokenness, how our sin, how our turning in on ourselves affected the Lord of the universe who loves us so, our Savior. We killed him. And we're guilty of killing him, just as those who were there. And you've got to see that personally. True repentance is based on that. There's got to be sorrow. You'll see that the life that came from what Peter had preached overflowed into the people who were hearing. They were cut to their heart. And it says in verse 41, they received that word. They received Peter's word, and they were baptized that day, 3,000 of them. You remember that we were dealing with about 120 last week. It's, It's an interesting thing to note that Peter's one sermon, his first sermon about the mighty works of God through Jesus, won more followers to Jesus than Jesus' entire earthly ministry. This is the kind of power that the Lord gives you through his spirit. That you can bring the power of life and death through words, through simple things, and they have extraordinary weight. Paul says in Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of salvation for those who believe, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. It's the power of salvation. So God's love is extraordinary. It provokes reaction, but lastly, it brings about results. You see what they devoted themselves to, right? It says those who heard the word and devoted themselves to the word, what they did was they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which is an unpacking of the mighty works of God. It's an unpacking of Scripture. When you go and you talk to somebody about who Jesus is and what he's done, if you've come from a church background and you've had some training in that and you've looked able to open up the New Testament and show a little bit of what has happened in the gospel and explain it to somebody, 
you've got to recognize that when they were doing it, when Peter was doing it, when these disciples were doing it, they were opening up the Old Testament to show who Jesus was, the Hebrew Scriptures, to show who Jesus was. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We remember that we said Jesus is both Lord and Messiah, and the promised Holy Spirit has come. These are the mighty works of God which they unpacked. But they also devote, it's important then for us to devote ourselves in the same way to Bible, studying the Bible, understanding the mighty works of God. Not only for our own edification, but for being able to prepare to give the reason for the hope that we have, like Peter later says. But they also devoted themselves to fellowship. This is a large community now. What would happen if suddenly we added 3,000 to this number right here? That's what it looked like. 3,000 that day added to our number. How do we take them on? How would we be community together? And that's what they devoted themselves to. Exactly that, being community together. They spent a lot of time in worship. Part of that is celebrating the Lord's Supper. This is something that he instituted. Ordinary signs and seal, fellowshipping over a meal together. Eating the bread, drinking the wine. The breaking of bread is what it's called here. And they received it with glad and generous hearts, praising God. And they devoted themselves to the prayers. You know what prayer is? Prayer is dependence upon God. When you pray, do you ask things, ask for things that are on your checklist? Or do you submit those things in dependence upon Him and ask Him to shape those things and change those things and reorder those things? Are you going to God in personal relationship in your prayer? Do you know what it's like to experience His presence through your prayer, through His Spirit working through His Word? They devoted themselves to the prayers. And the belief that brought them together about the mighty works that Jesus had accomplished on their behalf brought them together in such a way that when there was a need, possessions and belongings were sold, and the proceeds of those things were distributed to wherever there was a need. There are stories like that that have gone on in this community. That's how the Spirit works. That we hold loosely anything that we've been given, recognize that everything that we have is from God, and that we look around our community for where the need is, and we try to meet it in tangible, practical ways. There was, there are uh, historians will tell you that, well, after that, well, after this time, there was a series of plagues that went through, swept through the Roman Empire, just killing. Hundreds of thousands of people killing, killing, killing. And the only way that you could survive the plague was to be cared for by somebody. The only way that somebody could care for the plague was to risk taking on the plague themselves. And we have, there are existent letters from Roman officials that describe the fact that early Christians were going out into the street and they were not only caring for their own sick and dying, but they were caring for Roman sick and dying too, or members of the empire. They were caring for them too. The idea that Jesus came to take on our suffering so that he could take it away from us was very prevalent here. And so they went out in very practical ways and they dressed wounds, and they gave water, and they wiped off foreheads, and some of them died. But this is the practical outpouring, the results of what our salvation means. Friends, we can also enjoy the riches of God's grace. 
We've got to faithfully use the means God has given us. The apostles' teaching, the Bible, which Jesus himself said points to his work, the mighty work that he's accomplished on behalf. We have to know that. Do you read it regularly? Do you have a plan to read it regularly? Or is it spotty? Do you come on Sunday and that's all the Bible you get? What would it take for you to devote yourself to God's word, to understanding it? It's there that life is found through his spirit working. But we also have the sacraments. One of the reasons we come to the table and why we celebrate baptism, baptism is bringing somebody into the community of believers. The table is where we celebrate being a community together. It identifies the fact that you're a healthy member in good standing with the community. That we celebrate God's spirit in our midst together. We also have fellowship with other Christians. Are you living your life as a Christian alone? Do you make your own decisions about who you date? And what you do with sexuality? And how you spend your money? Or do people that you trust who know the Lord, who can speak into your life and say, I don't know if that's a good idea. And do you let them have that weight in your life? Do you stand up and take notice when they speak? It's important. We're desperate for one another because God's Spirit works through us, one another, together. We need to be in fellowship. But also we can enjoy the riches of God's grace through prayer. We've already talked a lot about that. If you go too long without experiencing God's presence through prayer, there's something wrong. I'm not saying that you can demand God's presence in prayer. I'm not saying that it happens all the time. But if you go too long without experiencing His personal presence, His Spirit testifying with your heart that you're His child, then there's something wrong. If you've never experienced that, then go to Him. Ask Him for it. Now, All of this sounds big. Sounds like we've got tall order as a congregation. How do we do it? Because the reality is that we're going to fail at all of these things that I just told you to do. We're going to fail at them. We're going to fall down. I'm going to fall down. You're going to fall down. We're not going to be able to do it 100%. So how do we deal with this? Well, the same mighty works of God that save are also the same mighty works by which we grow in our faith, by which we grow to become more like Christ. You know, as I talk with some of you, and as I've talked with people over the years, one of the things that I hear over and over again is that, I'm just like that. We're talking about some circumstance in your life, and you say, I'm just like that. That's the way that I am. Jesus didn't come to leave you the way that you are. He came to make you like him. He came to change you. And it happens gradually. The process is called sanctification. When he makes you right with himself through his work, it's called justification. It's a once and for all declaration that you're made right with God because he worked on your behalf. Sanctification unfolds throughout life through the working of community, the relationships that you have with one another. It works slowly, but it's the same exact gospel. We grow as a community together in faith Because we look at Jesus on a regular basis in everything we do. We recognize how he went without a word from the Father on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, he said. He was left alone, dying, 
unjustly accused, unjustly put to death. His body was broken and spilled. He spilled his blood so that he was done, undone cosmically on the cross, so that you would never have to be separated from the love of the Father. You would never have the love of God taken away from you. We also see that his relationship with the Father and Spirit, his relationship within himself, you know the Trinity that we talk about, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons forever? What that means about God is that he's always contained within himself perfect community a rich community, the kind of community that we're supposed to be. And yet on the cross, he went without that, without the assurance of that. He was cosmically undone and pulled apart so that you would never have to be, so that you would never have to face God the Father and have him say, away from me. I never knew you. And he lost access to the Father in prayer. I talked a moment ago about experience the Father's presence in prayer. He is a representative man, God in the flesh, lost access on the cross. He went and faced silence and darkness and not light and life so that you could always have light and life if you come to God through him. So what are you waiting for? There's an old hymn that says, Lay your deadly doings down, down at Jesus' feet. Rest in Him, in Him alone, gloriously complete. Let's do that together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that the coming of Your Spirit means the pouring out of Your love into our hearts. That it is supernatural. That it provokes a response that it also brings about results in our lives, that we can live different lives. We are not left alone. We are not hopeless without you. You provided for us. You're present for us. And we are grateful. Thank you, Jesus, that you have stood the test in our place so that we can come to you freely now in the mighty and wonderful and astonishing works in your name. It's in your name we pray. Amen.